Hello and welcome to Bread and Rosaries, a podcast about the unique horrors of being British, leftist and a Christian. I'm Ben Molyneux Heddington and I'm joined as always by Adam Spears. How are you today Adam? Yeah I'm alright, how are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Uh, this is a bit of a strange one because we usually record, well in theory, every two weeks, more like every six months, <laughs> but uh, we actually only recorded like five days ago, uh, but because I am... Um, uh, going on holiday, we're doing a slightly early record, uh, so I'm a little bit worried that by the time this episode comes out, everything we said will be wrong, irrelevant, or completely uh, unimportant compared to the massive crisis that has emerged. That's the nature of a podcast that's attempting to to talk about politics, isn't it? You know, everything's going to be superseded within like hours. Everything but, of course, the immortal writings of Karl Marx. <laughs> That's not actually true. It is quite funny, like, how quickly some of his stuff just became horribly outdated. Yeah, but I think, you know, unless you're going to be obsessive, like an orthodox Marxist or something. I mean, Marx was pretty open about wanting people to be able to, like, build on his work, wasn't he? So Yeah, yeah, and I always find that as someone who is brought up evangelical, I always get the creeps when people you think of as, you know, comrades are starting to talk about the writings of Marx or whoever else in the way that people I used to know talked about the Bible. You can make a cult out of anything, can't you? And hopefully someday someone will make a cult out of this very podcast. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Uh, that will be the day that I leave, I think. Mate, if you want to miss out on the advantages of being a cult god, that is up to you, but I am <laughs> not missing a moment of it. What are these advantages you talk of? Um, I assume people will bring me like food offerings. And maybe like, <laughs> do you know what I really want? Ideally, I want someone to do my ironing for me. That is that is the ideal situation. I was going to say, I mean, like, as if people don't already bring you food offerings. No, I do, I do all the cooking at home and at work. Do you actually? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I really enjoy cooking though, so that, that doesn't bother me too much. I think uh, what's 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 interesting about hearing that you really enjoy cooking is that I know what your diet's like. start as always on the podcast with what else is on my mind grapes what else is on my mind grapes what is on my mind grapes sadly is uh our illustrious leader mr boris johnson um who is still our illustrious leader by the skin of his teeth we are recording on the day after uh he survived a no confidence vote i'll be honest with you i spent a wonderful weekend in the middle of nowhere and uh, have happily avoided pretty much all news about it. If you'd have asked me my gut instinct, I'd have said, oh yeah, Boris Johnson will survive that, basically based on the fact that he appears to be made of Teflon. I don't think it's so much that he's Teflon. I mean, he is, but I think the biggest part of it is that, A, the Tories don't really have anyone to replace him with. You know, all the people who you would think would be the most capable, and and I really can't believe I'm going to say this, but people like Jeremy Hunt um, are not that popular in the Tory party, whereas people who are popular in the Tory party, um, people like Liz Truss, are um, utterly useless. In December, I'll be in Beijing opening up new pork markets. Hey, that is my local MP. Oh, wow. Lucky you. I'm sure I've said this before on the podcast, but I once had a long 
exchange with her chief of staff, which was basically me getting increasingly aggravated about them not understanding that one event could happen after another. Um, <laughs> they were saying, we weren't invited to this event. And then I was going, right, but then you were invited to this event. And they were saying, where? But we weren't invited to any event. Like, no, no, no. It was an absolute nightmare. Uh, I do not recommend it. Why were you inviting them to events anyway? Because uh, I was on the town council, uh, which was one of the worst mistakes of my life. Local democracy, it's very bad. Are you not on that anymore? Oh, fuck no. I I stayed far longer than I should have done. Um, I mean, like, maximum respect to anyone who does try and do some stuff for local democracy, and I think there are places where you can make a real difference. But not anyone. Not respect to anyone who tries to do that stuff. Oh, yeah, no, 100%. My (laughs) apologies. Maximum respect to any leftist who uh, wants to try and change local politics. There is an argument to be said that actually in terms of electoral politics, the arena in which you can have the most impact as an individual or a small group is very local government, uh, but it is um, hell on earth, quite frankly. So, uh, yeah, I no longer do that, but I did have the misfortune of interacting with our future Prime Minister, Liz Truss, uh, (laughs) or her Chief of Staff, who uh, seems to be just as uh, useless, incompetent, and vile as Truss herself. Oh, you you surprised me. Well, yeah. Sometimes you get, like, a useless, incompetent, and vile MP with a vile and extremely competent chief of staff that actually means that they achieve the vile things they want to do. Uh, In this case, there was just incompetence all the way down. Which is frustrating, but probably better than if there had been competence. Oh, I don't know. I think um, incompetence seems to be the order of the day, so who knows? Who knows? Yeah, I mean, uh, I really find it hard to care in some ways about Boris Johnson, whether he's I was going to say stays or goes, and almost said lives or dies. Uh, fill in as you feel is appropriate. <laughs> but um, but it doesn't. I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter, does it? Because you know, this is this is the way liberals and and right wingers will often consider this kind of thing. Is that it's all about individual personalities, and like individual personalities in politics can be important in so much as um, you know, if someone's especially charismatic they're more likely to get elected leader and be able to implement their policies. But their policies are normally so close together that there's not a lot of point who you elect in the first place. It's not like Boris Johnson as an individual is the biggest issue here. The biggest issue is the fact that, well, not even just that the Tory party are awful, but electoral politics is awful. And even from the perspective, you know, you might argue, well, Hitting the credibility of Johnson makes it more likely to elect a Labour government. But when you've got such a wet fart of a Labour party at the minute with almost no real difference uh, between them and the Tories, uh, I mean, I don't give a shit if it's Starmer in charge. I'm not convinced that in certain areas of policy, Labour are any better. I think in certain places, they're worse. Um, On national security, Starmer is gross. Like some of the stuff that he believes, um, especially when it comes to things like protesters, you know, you, you've only got to um, look at his his record as uh, a director of public prosecutions to see that he went for protesters. And actually, uh, a big part of the reason that they, because um, initially they supported the, um, what is it, the police crime and um, whatever it is, Bill, they, they supported that. And then uh, when it actually came to it, they abstained. And the reason they abstained is because it didn't go far enough. 
right? This is this is how awful Starmer is. And I I was already kind of not a fan of Starmer, but then I read uh, Oliver Eagleton's um, recent book on Starmer, which is uh, absolutely worth a read. Um, and it really shows you just how hawkish and nasty he is. So, you know, often people will say to me, well, how can you um, say don't vote for either Tory or Labour? Well, in certain ways, Labour are worse. So do with that what you will. I think as well, I mean, I maybe wouldn't quite go as far as you as someone who has uh, dabbled in electoral politics here and there. But I think there's something important to recognise that the tactical approach of the current Labour Party forces it to the right on a lot of social issues because it wants to basically prove to Middle England Tories that they think might switch across because they hate Boris so much that they are, you know, reliable, solid, whatever you want to call it. And so they end up pushing well to the right of the Tories because they have more to prove because they're assumed to be soft on crime, soft on immigrants, all that sort of stuff. And so they end up not necessarily out of any, you know, heartfelt convictions, but out of a belief that it's tactically sound and uh, a lack of moral fibre. They end up to to the right of the Tories. Uh, And I think the place that that is most obvious to me at the moment and most disgusting by some way is the way in which the Labour Party keeps getting caught up in equivocating over trans rights. Because I don't think... There are no doubt some nasty transphobes in the Labour Party and the Parliamentary Labour Party. But actually, I think a lot of the people that have got caught out aren't people who are or who hold transphobic beliefs, but are scared that by being supportive of trans rights, they're going to get painted as loony lefties or whatever else. And so they equivocate and... You know, all they do is don't impress anyone and throw trans people under the bus. Yeah, which is disgusting. It is, and and I mean that's a an example of a social issue where where that happens. We can also point to economic policy where uh, the Tories have outflanked Labour on the left a number of times now, and you know that's someone like Rishi Sunak as Chancellor of the Exchequer as well. You know, clearly he's he's doing that to score points. You know, that's not actually ideologically his his position but if he can score points by sort of you know ostensibly tacking left on economic policy um even just briefly or 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 appearing to do so then he absolutely will um and time and again labor have have been outflanked uh because of that yeah i think you saw that recently where obviously there's been the issues around the cost of living crisis and spiraling energy costs and uh the tories after a lot of pressure and various things uh, finally announced a raft of policies to deal with it. They were woefully inadequate, but they at least announced something. And Labour's response was to say, about bloody time, which is probably the right thing to say, and then say, but we want to know how you're going to afford it. And yeah, you yeah. just think, guys, this is not the conversation you want to be having. You can't play the Tories on their own turf like that. They are never going to let you, no. the media and the way that the... Uh, superstructure of our society is set up you are never going to get away with pushing the tories on economic credibility by saying actually we agree with your basic assumptions and we're going to use them to attack you you have to present an alternative and so yeah there are so many ways in which they end up because of uh, supposed tactics i don't think are particularly smart anyway um but because of these supposed tactics they end up espousing views that are well to the right of the Tory party um, 
and I'm probably not going to vote for a party that's well to the right of the Tory party, but because I still am technically a member and kind of don't want to get, get kicked out just in case it's useful, I think I have to encourage other people to vote for them. So um, everyone else should vote for them, obviously. <laughs> uh, yeah, vote Labour. To offer an alternative uh, to your voice encouraging people to vote Labour, um, fuck Labour, don't vote for them, don't vote for the Tories. If there's a good third party, I'd say vote for them. The idea is to try and... Uh, try and encourage other parties to adopt some of those policies but to be honest at the last local elections that happened what a month ago or so i didn't vote i didn't even turn up because the options on that ballot paper were useless absolutely useless i'm not going to vote tory obviously i'm not going to vote labor for reasons we just discussed and i'm not going to vote greens until they've dealt with their trenchant transphobia problem and, you know, obviously there are probably even a majority of people in the Green Party who are not transphobic. But the fact that their structures are allowing people to, you know, they're making a, a, an ideological battle out of that. That, for me, means that I, I can't elect that party. Jesus weeps for Gaza. He sees the pain and suffering of the 1.9 million people who have been forced to leave their homes without access to nutritious food, clean water, decent shelter. He hears the cries of the 25,000 orphaned children. He is with all who mourn the 250 people killed every single day. Christians for Palestine UK is a group of Christians who are calling for an immediate ceasefire in Palestine. We don't pretend to have all the answers, but are united in our prayers, hope and action for equality, peace and justice for all the peoples of the Holy Land. Together, we are organising a Christian presence at the National Marches for Palestine and Local Days of Action, where we've been joined by siblings from Sabil Kairos, Pax Christi, and a whole range of Christian churches. We urge you to join us to act in solidarity with the people of Palestine and call for a permanent ceasefire and just peace. The Very Reverend Canon Richard Sewell, Dean of St George's College in Jerusalem, says... I warmly welcome the newly formed group, Christians for Palestine UK. Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank need to see the solidarity of Christians in the UK and they will be encouraged to see your commitment to stand up for them in their time of terrible suffering. To find details of local actions or to join the Christian bloc at a national march, follow Christians for Palestine UK on Instagram and Facebook, or email ChristiansForPalestineUK at gmail.com. Join us as we call for a ceasefire now. Yeah, I mean, Godspeed to everyone who is in the Green Party trying to solve its transphobia problem. Um, you know, you're, you're doing good work and I don't want to disrespect you, but yeah, right now it's... Uh, 
For me, if I'm going to vote for a compromise party in an attempt to have some minor victories in electoral terms, why would I vote Green over Labour at the moment when it's being ripped to shreds by transphobia and, and does keep saying stuff that is not anywhere near as right-wing as Starmer's Labour, certainly, but, you know, there are times where it tried to outflank Corbyn from the from the right. Um, so, yeah, I don't want to be too harsh to the Greens because I know people who are part of them that are good, solid comrades and there are reasonable arguments for being part of the Greens, but, yeah, not for me. Well, I mean, ten years ago, the Greens were a pretty solidly socialist party. I mean, when we when we met, we were both Greens members, I believe. Yeah, 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 we were. I mean, to be honest, I have gone more sort of left libertarian yeah. since my earlier, you know, the earliest days I was in the Green Party. So I, I don't think I would join now, but, you know, I might as well vote for them if they're going to give me something to vote for mm. um, but at the moment they're not so our main topic of today is to talk about a little something called COVID-19. Adam, have you heard of it? No, what's, what's that? Well, yeah, see, this is the problem, of course, is that you were already not really leaving your house at any point. So your life was almost <laughs> changed, not at all, uh, by COVID. Yeah, I, I am pretty much a hermit, so... Yeah, obviously, uh, as we all know, COVID is now officially over. Um, nothing <laughs> is going wrong anymore, so uh, it is very late in the day for us to have a conversation about it. We do have some critiques of uh, the government and all that, but we really wanted to talk a little bit about the experiences of lockdown and COVID uh, from a kind of church and Christian perspective and to kind of delve in a little bit of some of the changes, uh, things it might have revealed or problems it's raised or new ways of doing things it's opened up. Um, but I want to start by talking a little bit about uh, COVID conspiracy theories, um, and in particular, the prevalence of them amongst uh, conservative Christians in the UK. Um, I think it is not by any stretch of the imagination a common thing for conservative Christians in the UK to have COVID conspiracies. Um, we will talk a little bit about how Christians and churches have reacted to COVID in uh, a moment but what I do think is both that there is an overrepresentation of conservative Christianity within kind of COVID conspiracy anti-vax all that sort of stuff and also there are some specific ways in which Christians engage with those particular questions so to start with Adam why is COVID the Antichrist? <laughs> uh well, clearly, um, it's not COVID itself that's the Antichrist, because COVID mm -hmm. is just like yeah. normal flu. Yeah. Uh, no, <laughs> it has been, you know, there has been an anti-vax sentiment that, that relates. So I guess the two major strands of conspiracy theory is, one, that COVID itself is some sort of hoax, uh, possibly manufactured as a bioweapon by the Chinese, or... Uh, more likely in Christian circles, it's a hoax for controlling people, pushing them down, etc., etc. Uh, and two, that the vaccine is dangerous, that they're putting microchips, Bill Gates is going to control your mind, uh, any stuff like that, or that most of the deaths we're seeing now are from 
people dying from the effects of the vaccine, not from COVID. Obviously, there is plenty of scope for the overlap of those two. But yeah, both of those, I think, I have seen uh, on the internet, sadly. Those views kind of being espoused, not just by Christians, but inexplicitly kind of Christian language and as ways of understanding things. Yeah, and um, I mean, I think the really interesting and, and slightly scary thing is that all of this stuff tends to get smushed together and what i mean by that is you know we don't hear about it so much anymore but if you remember the q conspiracy theory yeah um that was particularly popular certainly just before covid and into covid um what happens is people who believe one conspiracy theory end up often believing a lot of others as well uh, it's almost like their gateway uh, conspiracy theories uh, because it because you build a there's there's a community you know that there are communities of people who who believe in these conspiracy theories and convince each other um and it's a sort of snowball effect um but i think you know a lot of it is people trying to find some answer to the issues that we that are real issues in the world right like there are real issues that we face for example just coming up now you know this cost of living crisis and really we've had a cost of living crisis for a decade or more um but now it's really coming to the fore um people end up entertaining conspiracy theories in large part because life is made more difficult for them by people who have a monopoly on power and wealth. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you see that particularly where people are blaming the ills of the world on conspiracies involving COVID rather than the kind of broader reality of capitalist exploitation. I do think as well, conspiracy theories, you know, I think there's been a ranging argument in sociology about the extent to which you can understand conspiracy theories in a religious, you know, way of thinking. But there is certainly plenty of overlap between religious experience and religious belief and belief in conspiracy theories in terms of how it functions uh, and particularly in terms of those practical effects whereby you know religion is used to make people forget about the woes and difficulties to distract and confuse about where the uh, problems are being caused by um, you know pie in the sky when you die is really appealing to capitalism because it starts people asking questions like why can't i have pie right now mm-hmm. i'm wondering do you think there is any sense in which being a conservative christian and being uh, in certain forms of christian theology might i guess prepare one to be particularly receptive towards these sorts of conspiracy theories oh yeah absolutely I mean, I have certain family members who believe all sorts of weird theological nonsense that tends to centre around a very dispensationalist reading of the book of Revelation, which, you know, is already an odd book and, and, and hard to read. So it's sort of no wonder um, that it that it would centre around that. But I think when you go to a church and when you're sort of indoctrinated into a very, uh, not just a very conservative, but, but you know, a fundamentalist uh, form of Christianity – where revelation is i would say read in a literalistic way but actually it's such a crazy book that you know these people are making decisions about how to interpret these things and in many cases are not reading it in a literalistic way um they just kind of think they are but when your brain is sort of prepared for that kind of thing i think it lays the groundwork 
for these conspiracy theories as well. You know, if you believe that the earth and everything in it was literally created by God in six days, if you believe that all Christians could be subject to imminent rapture at any given moment, and that the mark of the beast is a literal thing that people are going to have on their on their wrists and, and foreheads, and that will mark you out for eternal condemnation, you know, to get crispy with Satan, or, uh, you know, if you don't have it, you'll be executed on the spot. You know, if you believe these things because your church has told you to believe them, it's no wonder that you're willing to believe things like Q conspiracy theories um, that have absolutely no basis in reality whatsoever, um, or COVID conspiracy theories, which, you know, are only marginally more sensible than, than Q conspiracies. Yeah, and I think there's obviously a sense in which if you believe that they're a literal devil is active in the world and there are demons that can possess people and that there is uh, an ongoing war between the forces of good and uh, the devil then um, it uh, you know it makes a certain sort of sense to look at major vaccination schemes you know worldwide pandemics and see demons and the devil at at work, and I know that when I have seen examples of people who are conspiracy theoried about these things and come from you know Christian backgrounds, they are not just saying, you know, the this is this is the government doing this as whatever. It is about you know the devil is at work at the heart of the you know British government or the American government or whoever you know the the world which he is yeah right? yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, the World Health Organization is, you know, demon possessed or, you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, they, they are very specifically Christian approaches to these conspiracy theories. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think you're right that the people are already primed. And I think what is the distinction between kind of a leftist analysis of the world and conspiracy theory? Well, it, you know, obviously, oh, our flippant answer to that would be the leftist analysis is correct the conspiracy theory is made up well it's it's based in science and i mean that not in the hard sciences but in the so-called soft sciences in sociological principles that can be measured that can be defined and quantified right that's that's where certainly sort of modern socialism comes from i think my my the point i'm making and you're not wrong is that actually a lot of the time the conspiracy theorists start from a point of recognising some of the, you know, the same things that people who go on a socialist journey might recognise. Yes. Um, and obviously they go off the rails with that, but in some ways capitalism offers conspiracy theories because they'd rather people are conspiracy theorists than leftists. And yep. I think there's an opportunity there to recognise that the impulses that lead people to conspiracy theories might lead people to better conclusions because we offer a, a better, if somewhat more depressing and less exciting sometimes, analysis. I don't think that is true of this specifically Christian approach because it doesn't start from analysis that something is deeply horribly wrong in the world. Well, it does, but that something is uh, gay pride is celebrated. You know? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, with conspiracy theories in general, you can see how there is an opportunity to reach out there and people might be intercepted before kind of falling into the conspiracy world. With these specifically Christian sorts of conspiracies, I, I don't know if I see the same hope yeah i mean I, you know it, it is possible for people to leave the kind of conspiracy theory rabbit hole but i think it's rare and um you know you tend to just end up further and further into it 
I think there is hope. Um, there's a lot of work done on conspiracy theories now. Um, a lot of good books about it. Um, but I think it's the kind of thing that, that takes a lot of patience and a lot of work, a lot of dedication. And, and sometimes it feels like actually your time is better spent elsewhere than arguing with conspiracy theorists who if you know big if uh, if they change their mind it will be over a long period of sustained effort on your behalf and probably uh, on other people's behalf as well yeah one of those conspiracy theories that we've mentioned is the idea that covid itself was manufactured in china or uh, whether purposefully or otherwise maybe it was a bioweapon maybe they just made a mistake but now they've released it to the world you know all sorts of rumors about you know grim horrific scientific experiments that have led to it the reality of course is the real cause when you dig down to it is that covid is just another symptom of the mammoth and overlapping environmental crises that are occurring in the world right now yes and i guess you know that is not a unique point to make particularly in leftist circles i think whilst there are a small group of leftists who are not really engaged in any form of environmentalism or environmental thinking, I think by and large, most leftists, at least the ones worth taking seriously, now recognise that uh, environmental crisis or multiple crises are a key leftist issue that you have to engage with seriously to have any hope of, uh, well, a future for the planet, but certainly a future for for the left. And I think it's interesting to think about that from a... Christian perspective and a theological perspective because actually you know if you are taking the basic Christian view that uh, you know God created the world not necessarily in a creationist sense but in some broader sense uh, that he has blessed it and you know given it to humans for for good that that opens up some doors around a commitment to environmentalism as an extremely high calling and i'm interested to hear your thoughts adam on why even you know amongst what should be a real wake-up call as to the sheer effects of the environmental crises because covid is just the first of things that are only going to get worse there has been a small amount of what you might term like liberal environmentalism but serious ecological you know revolution that is needed hasn't been something that has been on the agenda for the majority of christians and churches in this country yeah well i think i think the problem we don't want to face up to is that climate change is a crisis of capitalism and people especially churches churches are populated by people who actually do all right of capitalism by and large yeah. you know mostly middle class people who you know it's not really in their interests as far as they see it to think any other way or certainly to approach these kinds of issues with the kinds of solutions that would actually work but i mean even even if you're talking about how things like pandemics come about and and spread pretty much every pandemic you can imagine at some point is something that jumps from animals to humans. Yeah. Um, smallpox did that. Obviously, COVID did that. Bird flu, SARS, all of these things jump from animals to humans, mostly because of meat consumption. Um, and this is not me trying to have a go at people who eat meat. You know, ultimately, I think I'd like to live in a world where we do just all have a mostly kind of vegan diet. But 
the structures need to be in place to to allow that to happen before we can have a shift in thinking on that and it's almost a, a kind of perfect storm in a sense because you can't shift people's thinking um, very easily without giving them options and and helping them to see that they can live about you know that kind of lifestyle a little more easily and you can't make those options available certainly under a capitalist system until you've shifted people's mindsets but you know when we look at people who don't have those same opportunities who don't have the same access to resources a lot of those people aren't approaching this kind of thing because actually they're just trying to live their lives you know they're trying to scrimp and save and afford to put food on the table so you can't even begin to properly think about climate change because you're working 50 60 70 hours a week you know sometimes more and who has the time to sit down and think about that kind of thing when you get home you just want to unwind but this is something that we have to deal with because you know the chances are if humans die out it will be because of a pandemic you know these pandemics are crises of environmental degradation as well and they will become more and more common and they will spread more and more easily as climate change carries on and is and is not addressed adequately um, and also as as things like antibiotics start to lose their effect as well through overuse and, and i think one other thing i would say on this is there's potentially an issue with kind of kind of baked into christianity with the way we think about the earth when we think about environmentalism when we think about environmental collapse climate change our instant thought i think most of the time is to go back to thinking about the creation narratives in genesis where humans are made stewards to kind of rule over animals uh, to rule over creation and i think it's really important that we are able to think outside of that as well because so often that kind of theology colors how we see and how we respond to the climate crisis as well whether that be a fairly extreme level where you've got some sort of more fundamentalist christians saying well climate change is good because it will speed jesus's return yeah. um or, or even whether you have people who think well it's our duty to look after the earth because we are stewards over it we are in charge of it it's not that there's no value to that view at all but i think that it almost creates within us a well certainly an anthropocentric view of what what do you mean by that talk i'm not smart enough to know it's 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 a, a view that places humans at the center of everything and therefore um human agency is the thing that is both the cause of and solution to the problems and actually on one level that's true because we need to now undo the stuff that we've done the problem with it is that it removes agency from all other life on earth and all other life on earth lives in symbiosis lives in a way that keeps everything in balance and humans are the ones that have created the imbalance and so if we're thinking in in such anthropocentric terms the the concern is that all our solutions to that are focused on us and what works for us rather than allowing the earth to and i would i would say almost allowing the earth to speak for itself right allowing the earth to recover itself and it's not that we don't have 
a role to play in that because we do. It's just that I think we need to realize that we are a part of nature too. We are a part of the earth too. And it's being that part of nature, that part of the earth that is the key thing here, rather than centering everything around us as a single species. And we've known this for a long time as well. The one that springs to mind is the marine biologist Rachel Carson, who was writing in um, the 50s and 60s that humanity was a part of nature. So its war against nature was a war against itself. And, you know, there is a critique of this as well, um, kind of also from a place of wanting to take a less anthropocentric view that says, well, actually, it's not that humanity is conducting a war against nature and therefore a war against itself, but it's the capitalist class that's conducting that war against nature and against the proletariat. And I think that's a, a convincing argument because in reality, as I sort of hinted at before, how much power does someone working every hour that God sends really have? Unless, of course, we unionise and, and collectivise and so on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's really interesting to hear you spell out that critique because I was kind of driving at, you know, the idea of stewardship of the earth is one that is, even amongst more conservative churches, fairly you know accepted, widespread. Um, and yet, in terms of actually caring for the earth the action is fairly limited so it's helpful i think to unpack theologically why that uh, idea of stewardship is not it might seem like it's something that you can really utilize for an environmental politics but actually is is actually ineffectual but then that leads me to the obvious question which is if we are not finding the idea of stewardship a useful theological resource for uh, our environmental politics, then then what would be a, a theology of the earth and creation that is helpful? I think we need to realise that at its heart, at its core, Christianity is a deeply materialistic religion. Mm. Yeah. Certainly when we're looking at sort of, you know, ancient forms and forms that sort of continue to be practised, it's a very materialistic religion. It's about how humans relate with those around us and with the earth around us the eucharist which unless you are sort of in a, a non-sacramental form of christianity is and has been the central act of christian worship almost since its inception arguably since its inception is a deeply material act in which you know it's, it's probably based within the context of an agape meal and an agape meal was a meal in which resources were shared everyone had enough to eat and no one went hungry if we're going to approach this crisis we're going to have to get back to those roots and say well we need to share in the resources that the earth is offering us rather than accumulate them all in, in one or two or three places and, and, and individuals. Only when we start to think in that kind of way are solutions going to work. And, and I, actually, I actually take some inspiration from St. Francis of Assisi with this. St. Francis is really interesting because he would name not just animals, but name and talk to celestial bodies as well, you know, brother, sun and sister moon. And this was not considered, you know, a, a heretical kind of thing, by the way, he was not sort of literally worshipping the sun and the moon, but he was giving expression to the fact that all of these things have 
an interconnectedness and have a way of changing and impacting his life and our lives as people as well. And so at the heart of Franciscan theology is this idea that everything is connected, that everything is in symbiosis, and that we need to walk lightly, almost recognising the right of everything to exist. I think there's a kind of Christian animism you can read into certainly St. Francis, but St. Clair as well, um, but also into Franciscan theology. I don't know if you've come across um, Christian animism before, um, but I think that's something that as Christians we we need to be exploring a lot more to be trying to understand that in some sense everything truly is alive and therefore everything truly does have you know i don't even like to use the the language of rights because it's a human yeah. sort of imposition on on things that already exist but things exist and in some sense are really alive and we need to respect and honor that hello ma'am i'm working to clean up the neighborhood from parasites do you mind if I take a quick look around your house? I'm afraid you may have hippies. Hippies? Yeah, they've been popping up all over the neighborhood lately. Miss Nelson next door had seven hippies in her basement, and they usually live in colonies. Hmm, I don't like the sound of that. Could I take a look in your attic? Oh, yeah, boy. Here, take a look at this, ma'am. You see that? Hippies. The other thing I wanted to talk a little bit about in terms of churches and Christians' approach to environmentalism is the way in which things have become quite individualised. Mm. So if you look at the history of climate change as the kind of most well-known environmental catastrophe currently occurring, climate change, there's the kind of two phases. The first phase is where essentially deny 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 happens you know fossil fuels companies are probably amongst the first to know that climate change was definitely happening and was caused by the burning of fossil fuels and they bury that evidence and they spend a lot of money on propaganda and lobbying and various things to essentially make people ignorant of of what their actions were doing um, and then there's a second phase which we're in now whereby it's pretty hard to ignore the fact that we are causing climate change to occur as humans and you know even amongst christians there is maybe a very small minority of people who are climate change denialists or say oh it doesn't make a difference or whatever the vast majority of christians in the uk accept climate change as settled science but the solution to this that is being peddled very aggressively is individualist it's about you sorting your cycling it's about you trying to take the train rather than drive it's about you becoming a vegan or a vegetarian you know switching your lights off saving electricity all this sort of stuff none of that is bad in any stretch of the imagination but it's all fundamentally inadequate for the scale of the crisis because a crisis of this scale requires a communal response not an individual one and I think Christians, particularly those who espouse or have been taught a conservative theology, are particularly vulnerable to this because 
conservative theology has a long history of emphasizing the individual over the corporate. Mm. We've talked before about this, but the concept of individual salvation, God came to save us sinners, but he didn't come to save us sinners as a group, but us sinners as a category of individual people who are saved individually through their individual relationship with Christ. You know, and I'm using that, you know, Christ came to save us sinners is not necessarily how I would phrase things. But just to give that example, there is a way of phrasing even that that is more communal, but that is not at all what is being espoused in conservative, or frankly most theology, uh, even of slightly more liberal ilk in this country. And so conservative theology creates the space for individual approaches to climate change. Um, So people can say, I'm taking climate change seriously. They probably have some sort of stewardship theology where they feel that they have to do good to the environment. But what they do is always individual. It never exists on a corporate level. Maybe the church, the individual church as a whole, might uh, get recyclable coffee cups. But ultimately, it's a very individual approach rather than looking to change society, change the way in which our world is run, the way in which our lives are lived communally, all this sort of stuff. And therefore, you end up with a very inadequate response to it, even amongst people who are claiming to take it very seriously and do, in fact, take it very seriously. But there are powerful vested interests that want us to approach these problems individually and most forms of Christian theology in this country prime Christians to accept that individual approach. Yeah, and I think that actually there are a lot of really creative solutions out there to this stuff. You know, even things like um, we know what car sharing is or carpooling. Even if you have something like a number of cars that are shared between a number of houses in the neighbourhood, right? That way not everyone needs to have their own car or two cars because you just have a bunch like a stock of cars and then you use it you book it out and use it or a a a tool library where not everyone needs to have their own tools you can just go to the community tool library and book out the tools you need these are creative but simple solutions that are communal in the way they operate and things that we really need to implement but the thing is because we live in a capitalist society we are not incentivized to think that way. You know, this is why libraries are, are you know, often defended sort of fairly actively by local socialist groups because they are examples of small-scale socialism that really do make people's lives better. Um, and you don't just have to have a library for books. You can have a library for all kinds of things. But in order to, to make these things a reality, we have to get out of the mindset that everyone has to have their own individual this, their own individual that, that for everyone's lives to improve, the economy has to constantly be growing. You have to constantly be buying and selling everything um, because that that is the mechanism that is causing this. And in a sort of similar way, the effects of climate change are very scary because you have these things called feedback loops and I think people are starting to become more and more aware of of feedback loops, but there are so many of these feedback loops. You've got what they call positive feedback loops and negative feedback loops. And uh, positive feedback loops are um, things that increase climate change and negative feedback loops are things that decrease climate change. But what happens is as one thing is hit or one target is missed, it affects something else. So for example... The fact that we have 
declining sea ice in the Arctic and uh, Antarctic means that less of the sun's rays are reflected, you know, bounced back off because white reflects light. And so you have this feedback loop where the ice is melting, but because there's less ice to bounce the light off, more ice is melting. And that's an example of a, of a feedback loop. But then you have these things where, because, you know, that happens, it then affects some other thing, which in turn increases how much and how fast climate change is happening. This is all based on the fact that we live in a system that is, I mean, it's not designed, but it's sort of evolved in a way that requires death to operate, right? It requires us to manipulate and destroy the planet around us. It cannot operate in any other way. And so in, in some respects, it's almost kind of, well, of course, there are these things called feedback loops that are making it worse and worse for us, um, because it's just reflective of the kind of death cult nature of, of capitalism. Yeah, I think it is uh, important to understand this stuff in the way, you know, and again, this is very Marxist of us to be talking about recursive loops and things impacting things, impacting things, dialectics, baby, as the meme goes. <laughs> we are, as most leftists, are extremely negative, depressing people to listen to talk. <laughs> and I thought we might talk a little bit about... I don't want to say the positives of COVID because that is a kind of ridiculous and insensitive things to say in response to uh, mass death. But things that have emerged that offer new possibilities, new thinking, new hopes over the last couple of years in response to this stuff to try and end on a maybe slightly more hopeful note than we might have been. I think I kind of want to start talking a bit about mutual aid. You know, mutual aid was a term that uh, kind of went from being a relatively niche anarchist idea to uh, a widespread thing during the first lockdown where people would set up local mutual aid groups and they would help people who were either isolating or uh, were particularly vulnerable or, you know, whatever else people would offer to help get shopping or, you know, in some cases you were talking about material or financial support, donations, um, you know, whatever needed to be done and you saw a, a join together of communities. And I think there were critiques of that um, and the way in which those ideas of mutual aid became separated from its kind of more radical, particularly anarchist roots. But um, I think it was interesting to see those ideas um, that are inherently anti-capitalist, even as they were you know, in some ways drawn into capitalism for, for that brief period, the way in which they were kind of wholesale adopted across a lot, and particularly, you know, mutual aid exists as a kind of alternative to charity, um, recognising the critiques of charity um, and trying to find the solutions within people rather than organisations. Yeah, and, and, and actually this is one of the ways that the powers that be sort of indoctrinate us into keeping the status quo, right? Because... You know, when people think of anarchy, they think of chaos. Um, they think of violent thugs. And actually, things like mutual aid are a key feature of anarchism. And it's incredible that you would have, I mean, even government-sponsored programs that, that sort of ended up adopting grassroots efforts at mutual aid 
and and turning them and, and sometimes even commodifying them taking these anarchist principles and completely divorcing them from that ideology so that people were doing things not knowing that they were acting as anarchists do you know what i mean you know there's a there's certainly a positive to take from that but it's also quite depressing that they you know the government particularly managed to so successfully take these ideas and bastardize them so yeah it's it's uh it's it's some and some mixed blessings for for sure and yeah i think there are definitely critiques of the way that mutual aid was used in lieu of you know real government support the other i think benefit that i wanted to talk a little bit about was the way in which things went online and although this is quite a complex idea, there are good reasons to want to meet together in person, in real life, and dangers of doing things online, particularly in terms of church services, but also, you know, forms of political organising, you know, moving to Zoom or whatever, there was an increased ability for disabled people to participate and engage with those things. Obviously, it is worth saying that neither of us are from particularly high church backgrounds so you know there's recognition that for those who are further up the candle as the saying goes it might have been harder to deal with the non-in-person nature of meeting as churches um, but there are certainly benefits to the disabled community in terms of access and participation yeah i think that's true i mean you should... i would say you say neither of us are from particularly high church places and and that's true but whilst it's certainly for, you know from my point of view it was certainly easier for me to kind of deal with this stuff and adopt these alternative ways of doing things than it would be for someone who you know who's an anglo-catholic who places huge importance on communicating at least once a week yes that would be very hard but i think it's also important to recognize certainly for me you know i i do actually have quite a high theology of of the eucharist and base a lot of my way of thinking about this stuff and thinking about sacraments and, and how we do church around a sort of eucharistic and sort of i guess a broader kind of sense of of what it is to be community and have things like agape meals and, and so on and so forth so yes yes you're right it was more difficult for some people whose theology is is like that but i don't think that that means that there the challenges were sort of especially minimized for for everyone who who doesn't have theology that's quite like that but i think one of the positives that you sort of alluded to with this stuff is that things became a lot more open for many disabled people um and on one on the one hand there's a there's a deep frustration in that because disabled people were pleading with churches to make stuff available online for years before churches actually did and churches always sort of you know a lot of them seem to always sort of come back with oh no no that's too difficult it's too you know it's too much of an investment it's too hard it's uh it's this that and the other because they quite clearly didn't value disabled people as they should but as soon as it was something that affected everyone else suddenly people were learning about this magical thing called Zoom. And I think there's a level of self-crit that needs to happen there that I think not a lot of churches are actually doing. However, the fact of the matter is, whilst there's a, a level of hurt to that, it did finally make things more accessible for many people. And that's good. Many churches have retained that as well, which is which is even better. But the sad thing is I have also known of some churches that were online and have now stopped being online 
because as far as they see it, they don't need to anymore. And there there are some churches that have stopped being online because they just don't have the resources to do that. And I get that. There's a, you know, each community is different, but we still aren't, uh, we still aren't quite there. I think um, with, with valuing the humanity of disabled people as we should. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's fair to say. I think we will uh, leave that discussion there. There are plenty more things to talk about in terms of COVID, um, but uh, it was interesting to kind of delve into some of those issues as they related to the church in this country. Um, I'm not sure how successful we were at going for a hopeful ending, but uh, hey, we're leftists. <laughs> we did the best we could. Um, thank you very much for listening. As always, please do get in touch with us if you have any questions, thoughts, feedback, or just to say hello. Um, you can get in touch with us. Uh, on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash bread and rosaries. We are on Twitter at bread underscore rosaries. And you can email us at bread and rosaries at gmail.com. Adam, where in the world can people find you? You can find me at commie, X-I-A-N, um, available on most platforms. Wonderful. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, look after each other, take care of yourselves, and thanks, Adam. See you next time. Cheers. See you later. Just need you to tell me what alright, tell me.